This morning, we are going to Luke chapter 14. So if you would, turn your copy of God's Word and uh, please stand with me as we read Holy Scripture together. Luke chapter 14. We are beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to look this morning at one of the more challenging teachings of Jesus. It's challenging not only to his original audience, but it's challenging to us. However, as we will see, for very different reasons. Yet I'm convinced that this is one of the most important texts that people who are connected to the church today need to hear. I need to hear this, you need to hear this, and I pray that we have ears to hear it today. Uh, Lindsay and I moved to Shreveport about 10 years ago, which is hard to believe now. And before we lived in Shreveport, we lived in Dallas for a number of years after college. And the entire time we lived in Dallas, we rented uh, houses. Uh, So we lived downtown for a while, and then we moved to West Plano for a while. And so we couldn't afford to buy a a place in any any of those areas of town. And so we always just rented. There was an abundance of rental property. Uh, the, the cost to rent was not, you know, a whole lot more than a mortgage, and so it just made sense at the time. And when we moved to Shreveport, we thought, oh, we'll eventually buy a house, but, but we'll just rent a place first. We'll kind of figure out what part of town we want to be in, and, and then we'll buy something, you know, a few years down the road. And then we got to Shreveport, and, uh, you know, after looking at a couple of super dumpy and super expensive houses, we realized, oh, the rental market here is very different than it was in Dallas at the time because there was not an abundance of rental property. And uh, a lot of the places that were out there and available were pretty expensive. And so we just said, uh, well, let's just buy a house. But we had never bought a house before. Uh, I didn't know anything about buying a house. We just said, oh, we'll, we'll just do that instead. And, and then we started the process Um, So I remember talking to a realtor, and the realtor said, well, you need to get pre-approved for a loan. 
And so we got pre-approved for a loan, and, and I, I found out that I was pre-approved for like $1.2 million. Uh, not true, but it, it, it was like a huge amount of money, like way more than like the price range that we had been looking at. And I thought, oh, well, well maybe we can afford like way more house than we thought. And then I started talking to the mortgage agent about monthly payments and what those would look like. And I realized, oh, no, 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 no. Like, we need to be looking at, like, a totally different price range, like, way down here in the bottom end. That, that's where we need to be. And, and so, okay, we, we, we figured out monthly payment. And, you know, we, we put a contract in on a house. And, and suddenly there's this thing called earnest money we need to, okay, so we need to put down money here. And, and then uh, we have to get an inspection? Well, how much is that? What, really? It's $500 to, like, get it? Okay, here's $500. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a revelation, closing costs. I didn't know that was a thing. So, like, where, like, we were not prepared for this. We had not been saving money to buy a house. Like, we had to, like, scrape and save and eat beans and rice just to pull this thing off. We had not counted the cost, Right. Like, we had not done our research. We just said, hey, we're going to jump into this and do it. We'll see what happens. We had not gone through the process of actually going, what is it going to take for us to do this in a responsible way, right? And that's what Jesus is getting at today in this teaching. I wished we had done our homework before jumping into the home buying process. And today, Jesus is saying to this mass crowd of people, listen, you need to count the cost. You need to have an understanding of what this is going to be. You need to have a clear and sober-minded appraisal of what I am saying and what is being asked of you if you are going to be a true disciple. You need to be aware of the challenges that you're going to face. You're going to need to be aware that this is not going to be easy. But if, if you know those things going into this, and you still commit your life to it, it doesn't mean that the challenges will be less difficult, but there will be a greater likelihood that you will stick it out. Because when you get to those bumps in the road, you know, oh, I expected this. On some level, I knew that this was coming because I prepared. I, I looked at the framework. I looked at the path ahead, and I said, this isn't going to be easy, but it's worth it. And when the hard stuff comes along, I'm not blindsided. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, this is the kind of work that you need to do on the front end. And notice, as we read our text this morning, how many times Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't hate your father and mother, if you don't hate your own life, if you don't pick up your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not impressed with the mass crowd of people that was following him around. He wasn't impressed with the people who were showing up for the event. He was calling people to far more. He was calling them to commit the whole of their life. He was calling them to commit all of their resources. He was calling them to commit their very being, in fact, their very identity to him. One of the things that Jesus highlights 
what would have one, what would have been one of the great costs for those who wanted to follow him at this point in time was that this is going to affect your family relationships. That word that is translated from the Greek as the word hate really means to love less. It doesn't imply malice in the way that we use the word hate today. It really implies more um, that I love something more than I love this. And so what Jesus is saying is if you are more concerned with what your father on earth thinks or what your family thinks as opposed to what your heavenly father thinks, then you cannot be my disciple, right? If, if your goal is to follow them rather than to follow me, then you cannot be my disciple. If you think about this in a first century Jewish context, a context that has grown up with the idea that you should honor your father and mother. Jesus does a number of things that are like, he, he says things in a certain way that make you go, well, wait, wait a second. That's not what I've learned. Like, that's not the framework that I've been given. And this is certainly one of those things. What, what you mean that following God could somehow bring dishonor to my family. It could somehow be a challenge that I would have to plow through. This time, Jesus does not have mass public disapproval. Instead, there are certainly religious leaders who are bothered by him, but by and large, the general public is fascinated with him. They're not really sure who he is or what he is. By most people at this point, he's not seen as the incarnate Messiah. He's really viewed more as like a radical rabbi who's saying interesting things and doing miraculous things. So at this stage, there's not mass public disapproval of Jesus. That will come down the road. But, but once Jesus is arrested and crucified, he, he transitions within the public conscious from being a radical rabbi to being an executed criminal. And this is a pretty quick transition if you read the story of Scripture. And so at this point in time, when Jesus is speaking to this mass crowd and he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother and father. You have to love me more than you love your family in order to be my disciple. What those folks didn't have a framework for was the fact that not far down the road, Jesus was going to go from being radical rabbi to being executed criminal. I try to think about this in a modern context, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that the general public in Israel, following Jesus' execution, looked at him in the same way that we would look at like cult leaders today. So, so think about like David Koresh. Y'all remember David Koresh back in the 90s? He had the, the Branch Davidian cult in Waco. So, so just, just imagine for a second. Now, right, David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah as well. He had a small number of followers. He also died in an FBI raid. And, and the general public, following that whole thing, the general public thought, well, good, right? This, this like religious wacko, this cult leader, this sect leader is dead. Good. But imagine that after all of that happened, Imagine your child or your brother or your cousin came to you and said, well, actually, David Koresh came back from the dead. But he was only seen by a few people. 
And I've actually decided to devote the whole of my life to him. Imagine if in 2019, like 20 plus years later, there were people in your life that were following David Koresh. Like, we would think they were crazy. And in the culture of Jesus' day, this executed criminal, this religious sect leader who was deemed by the orthodox religious authorities to be a heretic and a blasphemer who had been killed because of his crimes of heresy in their mind, you're following him? Jesus said, you need to be prepared that to claim me may mean that you get disowned by those that you love the most. So who do you love more? Me or your family? Who do you love more? Do you love me or do you love your stuff or your money or your position or your power or your comfort? One of the things that I think we miss here as we read this kind of stuff, in the culture of Jesus' day, this kind of thing, following him as the Messiah, was a recipe for being completely disowned by your family, for becoming a social pariah. But now, in the culture that we live in today, when I was 13 years old, I gave my life to the Lord. By the time I was 15, I remember telling my parents that I felt like the Lord was calling me into pastoral ministry. And they could not have been more proud. So we live in a framework today, especially here in the South, this isn't true throughout the country, but especially here in the South, we live in a culture where we are literally living in the exact opposite of what those who would seek to follow Jesus 2,000 years ago would have been living in. We're living in a culture today, here in Shreveport, Bossier, where to claim Christ or to associate yourself with the things of Christ is not only culturally acceptable, but I would say in, in many sectors is culturally celebrated. To follow Jesus doesn't mean that you would actually have to choose between him and your family. In fact, your family's probably going to celebrate that you've chosen to follow Christ, right? Isn't that fascinating? Now, many of us would hear that and think, man, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that that's happened. Like, we don't have to face violent persecution for following Jesus we don't have to struggle with family members who don't get it. Some of you are from other parts of the country, and you've experienced a little bit of a different thing. But here in the South, man, we're all about Jesus. However, I also believe that our context has the potential to lull us into a state of superficial religiosity where we are not actually following Christ, where we are not 
discounting the real cost of discipleship because for many of us, there is no perceived cost. Does that resonate with anybody? If you've grown up around here, if you've grown up in the church, what has it cost you to follow Christ? When, when you actually take Jesus' instruction to go, man, if I'm really going to be his disciple, what are the things that I need to consider? seems to me that around here, for many of us, there's been very little real cost. But is it possible that, that that's actually a deception and that many of us are being lulled into a state of complacency by our superficial religious culture? parable came to mind as I was thinking through this text. Matthew 21 verses 28 through 32. This is Jesus teaching. Matthew 21, 28 through 32. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, these are the religious leaders, they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus tells this story about two sons. One says to the father, I will not do what you're asking me to do, but then he changes his mind and he goes and does it. The other one says, I will do what you've asked me to do, but he never really does it. And Jesus is using this as an analogy for the religious orthodox leaders of his day. What he's saying to them is, you are the second son. You are the ones who say, I will do what you tell me to do, but you aren't really doing it. You are the ones who would claim to have counted the cost, but you haven't actually counted the cost. Whereas there are others, in this case prostitutes, tax collectors, people perceived as sinners, they're the ones who initially rejected it, but then said, wait a second, maybe there is actual life and hope here. My concern is that today's Christian culture, the culture that we live in here in Shreveport Bossier, potentially breeds second sons, potentially breeds the kind of people that say, oh, no, I do follow Jesus, but they actually don't because there is the appearance of religiosity and because we have a culture that coddles it. What are the things that you have been asked to sacrifice in service to Jesus? And have you considered these things? I think there are a number of answers to that question, but today I want to focus in on one thing that I think we are all called to lay at the feet of Jesus and that many of us haven't, myself included here, guys. This is a sermon to me as much as it is to anybody else. One thing that we are all called to lay at the feet of Jesus, but many of us haven't, and that is our preferences. 
We idolize our preferences. In fact, I would say that we worship our preferences based on the amount of time and attention and energy and money and work that we give to satisfying our preferences. Our world preaches to us a gospel that says that what you want is the most important thing, that it is good to be selfish, that the primary thing that you should focus on is yourself and your family, and nowhere is that stuff more obvious, guys, than in the local church. Our church culture gives us a world where you can literally shop around and try to tick off all of the boxes that you have in your mind. It's possible to shop around and find what meets most of your preferences or what makes you most comfortable. And we are just now coming out of an era in the American church where church leaders were essentially taught that the most important thing that they could do to grow their churches was to essentially cater to people's preferences. What kind of music do you want, right? What kind of youth ministry do you want? What are the needs that you want met in your family, right? If, if we can find a way to tick all of those boxes, then maybe people will come and stay. This is what folks have been taught who are in church leadership. This has been especially pronounced for us um, as a church plant. Almost every week I have a conversation with somebody who's either leaving our church or who wants to join our church, both here in Bozier and in Shreveport. And nine times out of ten, their, their reasons for doing so are purely preferential when we really get down to it. They think going somewhere else is going to be easier for them in some way. They think going somewhere else is going to make them comfortable in some way. This is especially pronounced, as I said, when you're a church plant, you don't have all the things that like an established church has. You don't have a youth ministry. We don't have senior adults, right? We don't offer Financial Peace University. Uh, we don't have a ton of financial resources in general. We don't have an abundance of volunteers. Guys, we're meeting in a gym, in a school. We had to show up and set up all of this stuff this morning. We're going to have to tear it down after we leave, and that's just not something that a larger established church does in most people's minds. So it doesn't make sense. I don't want to have to come to church and work right? Why would I want to do that? And that isn't to say that there aren't reasons why a person should leave a church, but it is to say that virtually no one I talk to is leaving their church because of theological heresy. Virtually no one I talk to is leaving their church because the gospel is not being preached or taught, or that their church is saying that Jesus is in fact not Lord. Some are leaving because they've been wronged or because they've been sinned against by another person or because they have some kind of unresolved conflict with another person. And while that's certainly difficult, if we've counted the cost, we shouldn't be surprised when there is sin in a group full of sinners. Who all need a savior. I talked to someone recently who's leaving their church because they want to raise their hands and worship, but, but no one else at that church seems to do that, and so they feel self-conscious. So they're leaving their church. It 
Even right now, this sermon is making some of you think, man, we need to get out of here. But here's the thing. Being a part of a local church is, is not what Jesus is talking about in this text today. But here's the thing. If we can't even bear with each other, if we can't even be mildly uncomfortable or inconvenienced or sacrifice our preferences for each other, then how are we going to follow Jesus? who, based on this text, demands all of you, demands the whole of your life. Some of you remember the story of the rich young ruler, one of the most famous stories in the life of Jesus, a man who functionally his God was his wealth, was his financial resource. He wants to follow Jesus, but when he counts the cost... The cost is too great. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to stop following the other gods that you submit to and instead give your allegiance to me because I'm bringing about a new kingdom and I'm the king of that kingdom and I'm a king that demands your allegiance and obedience. I'm not a king that just demands that you say I exist. I'm not a king that just demands that you even tell other people that you think I'm real. I'm a king that demands that you do what I tell you to do. And if you don't want to do what I tell you to do, then you cannot be my disciple. Period. So if I'm the coming king, if I'm bringing about the kingdom of heaven on earth, but I'm not worth more to you than even your own family, then you cannot be my disciple. If your money is worth more to you than the coming king who is the creator of all things, who made you and gave you breath, then you cannot be my disciple. This is a hard thing, isn't it? Because the natural tendency that this should, or the natural inclination within us that this should bring about is to go, well, who then can be saved? And the answer is no one can be saved outside of Christ and the grace that he extends to us. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't love him enough. But if you recognize what he has done for you, that he has died to bring you from death the death of this world, the death of pursuing your own path, the death of your sin, enslavement to the enemy. When you recognize that he has died to free you from all of those things and to bring you out of this broken world and into his perfect holy kingdom, if that is what's happened in your life, then how could you not respond by giving him your allegiance? How could you not respond by saying, I will do what you tell me to do because you are a good, loving maker of all things? The path of discipleship is the path of difficulty. It is the path of discomfort. It is the path of trial. 
And that's the whole point. If you want Jesus, you have to take up your cross, meaning you have to pursue the death of you. You know, when Jesus said this, what's fascinating to me was that the cross was not something that people were associating with him at this point, right? The cross is still something that's yet to come in the life of Jesus. So when Jesus says, you have to take up your cross and follow me, the people weren't going, oh, that's right, because you're going to die on a cross. They didn't know that. We have the benefit of hindsight with this stuff. We have the benefit of looking back and going, somehow, the gift of salvation that the gospel offers us is free, it's something we could never buy for ourselves. It's something we could never get on our own. But yet, if we want it, it's not enough to just say, I want it. Right? We also have to make Jesus Lord of our life. That's what faith is all about. Faith isn't just about mental assent, saying, I think Jesus is real, or I think heaven's real, or I think God's real. There are plenty of people who think those things are true, but who are not followers of Jesus. who haven't given him their life. Because it doesn't quite make sense to them. One of the things that scripture says is that for those who are perishing, the way of the gospel is folly. It's foolishness. So there's this thing here in scripture that, as I said earlier, We have to have eyes to see this and ears to hear this. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit in order not only to truly recognize what Jesus has done for us, but to truly respond to him in faith. What Jesus makes clear in his teaching is is that his way, it may not seem like the right way. He he uses these analogies like he says, it's, it's like a narrow gate or it's like a narrow path. Surely there are better gates to go through. Surely there are better paths to walk down. There, there are these things that seem to make more sense than the way of Christ. And yet Jesus says, but this is the real way. This is the true way. Throughout his teaching in the kingdom, Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven is not small, but it is hard to see. He says things, it's like, it's like a mustard seed that is tiny, almost minuscule, but, but yet it grows into this tree. Or it's like leaven, it's like yeast, like that you, is in powder form, you can barely see it, but, but you put it in some dough and suddenly the whole thing is infiltrated by it. He says that's what the kingdom of God is like. It doesn't seem like this should do anything, and yet it does everything. It changes everything but it may not be the path that you would naturally choose to walk down. It may not be the path that the world has conditioned you to be desirable. Surely there are better things, paths that are more inclusive, paths that require less of me. Many have been deceived by this. Many will be deceived by this. But don't miss living to serve Christ because you're primarily living to serve yourself. As I said earlier, this is a teaching that for me, um, 
has been significant. I grew up in the church and heard the stories of Jesus my entire life. I was primarily told as a kid that all you need to do is believe. And what that meant to me was I just need to think the right things. That it was primarily an intellectual endeavor. But yet as the more I grow, the more I mature, the more I realize that Jesus is calling us to far more than just simple mental assent. He's calling us to truly submit the whole of our lives to him. Some of you remember the story of Jonah. God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. It was a city that belonged to the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were opposing the Jews at this point in time, and they were ruthless. They were known for all kinds of violent, heinous stuff like skinning people alive in battle. Jonah didn't want to go, and yet the Lord pursued him, didn't he? Graciously, he and mercifully, he does the same thing for us. He's coming after us. He's pursuing us. He's not giving us one chance and that's it. For most of us, we're getting chance after chance after chance. So have you counted the cost of following Christ? Like not just going to church. Remember, Jesus was trying to kind of thin out the herd. This mass crowd of people. Most of us would look up and go, wow, there's a thousand people here. Praise the Lord. And Jesus goes, yeah, most of you aren't going to get it. And that bears out to be true. As he's abandoned by these mass crowds and even his closest followers. Following him is not easy, guys. Even in a Christian culture. Even in a culture where it seems like it is kind of easy. I, just, you know, I go to church. I go to my Bible study. You know, I do all these things. But, but, but what about your life? Who are you actually following? What is actually your functional God? How are you sacrificing that for him? How are you submitting those things to him? In order to truly follow him and be his disciple, a learner, one who is being developed by the Savior. Let's pray this morning. Father, even though this is a difficult teaching, I pray that we are encouraged by the fact that this isn't dependent on our effort. That our salvation, our union with you is not based on anything but your grace. And you have not left us on our own. You have given us your Holy Spirit. Living within us. But yet it can be so easy to not listen to the Spirit and to instead listen to our world. It can be so easy to not be shaped by the Spirit or shaped by the truths of Scripture, but to instead be shaped by our world. 
Many of us are spending most of our time ingesting things that are not of you, but are of this world, of this culture. And I pray today, God, that we would see that you have called us to set those things aside. You've called us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. You have called us to be ambassadors of your kingdom who have passed from death into life, who have become your children, who have become emissaries of this new world that we live in, this new realm, this new kingdom. That's something we could have never done on our own. And so we give you praise and honor and glory this morning. Father, turn our gaze to Christ. Help us to see the beauty of the gospel. Help us to be excited, bowled over, to the point that we're willing to endure social hardship or awkwardness or uncomfortable conversations because we have been so changed we can't help but tell other people Help us to pray in the way that you've taught us that your will would be done, not our own will, not my own will, but your will, and that through your restorative action, through the gospel mission that you have sent us on, Father, we pray that your kingdom would come here as it is in heaven, that you would make all things new. Draw us to you today, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.